Welcome to week 51 of 60 Weeks, 60 Books. This week, we are revisiting a book that came out in May 2014. When I read it in paperback a year later, it sent me racing back to Homer, and inevitably in reviewing The Mighty Dead, Why Homer Matters, by Adam Nicholson, the Iliad and the Odyssey will certainly feature. My first encounter with Greek myth came when someone, at some point, for perhaps my fifth or sixth birthday, gave me a copy of a beautiful book, Dolaire's Book of Greek Myths, with exquisite illustrations based, I now know, first on Hesiod's Theogony, as well as touching briefly on the great story of Troy and its destruction in the closing chapters. Then there were the ladybird versions of the myths available at school before I acquired a copy of Roger Lancelin Green's Tales of the Greek Heroes, which I read and reread until it fell apart. I sampled the Odyssey and the Iliad as a teenager, beguiled by my passion for Keats into dipping into Chapman's Homer, dense, elusive and metaphysical as befits a contemporary of Shakespeare and Dunn. There are sections, set pieces of both Chapman's Odyssey and Iliad that are unsurpassable, but I could not sit down and read the whole thing. Similarly, I have sampled Dryden and Pope's translations, but lacking in stamina and seduced by much lower forms of literature like Dickens, Scott Fitzgerald and the extremely dodgy work of Kathleen Woodowis, I dropped Homer until somehow I found myself opting for classical civilization in my first year at university. The lectures were no good. I remember a few from a postdoctoral researcher with a dripping nose and even drippier delivery, all scheduled for 8.30 or 9, which was much too early for me in those long distant days when I would sleep late and then read in bed for hours before getting up in time, perhaps for any late morning seminars. But I did do all the reading with enthusiasm. Homer, Virgil, Sophocles, Aeschylus, Euripides, I loved both the epics and the tragedies. Then there was Ovid, who I adored, even though he is cynical, misogynistic, and nowadays, post-Me Too, seems sinister, stalky, and coercive. We were asked to read both the American poetic translations of the Odyssey and the Iliad by Richmond Lattimore and the prose renditions by the British publisher and writer E.V. Ryu. I passed the year respectably enough, despite missing the lectures, but then opted out of joint honours and focused on English language and literature. At this stage, I very much preferred the Odyssey. There were more women. The women were more powerful. I've always loved a good journey narrative, and in the end, Odysseus reaches home. Yes, he is a wildly problematic character, allowing himself to be seduced by first Circe and then Calypso, too damn cunning by half, not to mention the shock of his cruelty on his return to Ithaca. Perhaps it is fair enough for him to have destroyed all of Penelope's vile suitors, but hanging any of the women who had consorted with them seemed entirely excessive. The Iliad was even more violent, endless lists of ships and dead warriors, one long graphic bloodbath of crunching bones, arrows and spears, piercing soft flesh. Besides, I found the story of Hector and Andromache heartbreaking then, as I do now. 
still. I loved Homer. I love fostered by going one evening in the early 1980s to the Almeida Theatre and watching Christopher Logue and Alan Howard perform a section of the Iliad adapted from existing translations into his own strange post-punk vernacular by Logue and one of the most electrifying theatrical experiences I can remember. Logue's idiosyncratic, unfinished translation of some of the books of the Iliad is still vivid, vibrant, and issued in a new single volume called War Music. It's an apt name. His poem is full of harsh martial music. When I came to teach, especially younger students, the myths were an invaluable standby. Rare is the child who is not carried away by the violence, the power and the charisma of the characters, the explorations of courage, honour and glory, the cruelty and caprices of the gods, the terrible monsters and beasts that heroes must overcome. This was how I came to be given a cat by my students, which they then named Achilles. Unlike his namesake, my white furry friend lived a long and happy life in the care of my mother. Anthony Horowitz produced an excellent anthology of world myths with a heavy emphasis on the Greek and Roman stories so embedded in our Western cultural frame of reference. Then there were dramatised versions of Antigone by Heaney, the burial at Thebes, of the Odyssey by Simon Armitage, Alice Oswald's chilling, absorbing memorial, a glorious interpretation of the Iliad where she explores the lives of the some of the many men who are briefly named only to die terrible deaths at the hands of the major heroes, Hector and Achilles. And then came Adam Nicholson. I really can't remember how or why I came to pick up The Mighty Dead, but I did during the summer of 2015 while we were on holiday in France. And then I began raving about it and pressing it on friends and family. In 12 chapters, Nicholson explains just how and why Homer matters. Why he is still, perhaps more than ever, such an extraordinary poet. He also explores who or what Homer might have been. The Homeric question. I am not convinced that the Homeric question actually matters, although it is covered in A-level and GCSE classical civilization. There are some forms of writing where knowing the context of the writer helps our understanding and interpretation of what we read. But when I think of some of the greatest works we humans have produced, the identity, the outlook, the situation of the writer, or in Homer's case, arguably the composer or rhapsode, do not really matter. There are all sorts of names associated with great myths. The Akkadian or Sumerian myths of Gilgamesh, Enkidu and Inanna were possibly written down by priests, perhaps by Enhedwana, poet, priestess, and daughter of the great king Sargon of Akkad. Vasya was theoretically the sage and chronicler of the Mahabharata and is also a character in the epic itself, just as Valmiki played the same role in composing the Ramayana. And according to Nicholson, Homer himself could have been a creature of myth, perhaps the child of Calliope, muse of epic verse, or alternatively the child of a girl from Io and a demon, a spirit who danced with the muses. 
we have no way of knowing very much about these original chroniclers of the epic, but the likely truth is that all our foundational myths, tales and epics began as fragments that were collected, collated and eventually amalgamated into what became seen as a single epic. Does this matter? I don't believe so. What these tales all offer is that strange rip into the fabric of time, what Nicholson describes as vertigo-inducing when he sees the Hawara Homer in the Bodleian Library, a papyrus copy of books one and two of the Iliad, used as the pillow of an unnamed, mummified young woman discovered at a huge burial site near Fayum, west of the Nile by an eccentric young archaeologist, Flinders Petrie. Nicholson guides us to the undeniable importance of keeping open these portals into our collective pasts. He opens by recounting his own rediscovery of Homer. A scholar at Eton, he had struggled with the original Greek as a boy, scraping an exam and I suspect giving it up as soon as he respectably could. But in 2004, he picked up a copy of the Fagel's translation of the Odyssey and took it with him on a sailing trip from Falmouth in Cornwall to Baltimore. Not the American one, but the one in County Cork, a 250-mile crossing where the Irish Sea meets the North Atlantic. And clearly from that point, experiencing the dangers and exhilaration of a sea crossing, Nicholson fell in love with both Odysseus and Homer, the most truly reliable voice I had ever known. He explores his deepening obsession, his search through translation after translation of that elusive, intense, all-encompassing grasp of our humanity, sometimes so base, so low, at others yearning for glory, acting with honour and integrity. Nicholson was in his late 40s when he discovered Homer. He writes so beautifully about so many aspects of both the Odyssey and the Iliad. These are some of the things he writes about. First, how once you love Homer, he infuses everything you see and do. I realised this myself when we lived in Brighton, in a flat with a huge bay overlooking the channel, so changeable, some days leaden, others gunmetal grey, pale turquoise, a deep dark blue, shimmering, roaring and thrashing at the pebble beach, and always in the back of my mind was that sense of the wine-dark Aegean, mysterious, deceptive, perilous. And once you are familiar with the epithets that Homer uses, grey-eyed Athena, Helen with her heifer's eyes, swift-footed Achilles, horse-taming Hector, thundering Zeus, lord of the gods, they come to mind continually. For years, as I drove towards work on the Isle of Man, as the sun rose over the sea, dawn seemed perpetually rosy-fingered. Then there is the mutability and multifaceted nature of Homer. Nicholson traces the homogenization of the works that had become the Odyssey and the Iliad. He writes of the Alexandrian text, which became the source for Venetus A, the most complete and earliest complete version we have of the Iliad, dating back to 10th century Byzantium, but only discovered the year before the French Revolution. It is a sudden and startling revelation that really... Between the 10th century and 1788, 
Although people knew of the Iliad and the Odyssey, they did not really read them in their entirety. As soon as you begin to look at many of the great epics, particularly the Sumerian and Akkadian ones, the story is the same. We only discovered the clay tablets 150 years ago. We did not really decode them for another 20 years after that. The vertigo is back. These are foundational myths, but they've only really become part of the fabric of our cultural heritage since 1800 or 1850 or even 1900. And I would argue that they are absolutely embedded in our cultural heritage, not simply that of the liberal West, but our wider global heritage. These are works that transcend nationality and identity. Just think of the way in which Death of a Salesman became an extraordinary worldwide phenomenon, moving Chinese audiences to tears. We all know the characters that people Homer, the greedy, the sulkers, the rash, the impulsive, the stoical and the seductive. We all know the fear of death, the wish for immortality, the ambiguous relationship with the gods, the fundamental inevitability of our choices and actions and their consequences. Nicholson also highlights the contrasts that flow through the poems. City dwellers challenged by nomadic tribal warrior chieftains, the fluid sea set in counterpoint to the solid land, the stasis of the siege of Troy against the perpetual motion of the Odyssey, the nostalgia for a simpler, more straightforward past against the possibility of an uncertain, unknown future. Then there is the continual pull between the desire for glory, for honour, for immortality through one's deeds, even if not through one's physical being, against the desire for calm, for the quiet life of cultivating one's garden, one's homeland. Achilles is explicit in his choice. His mother, the goddess Thetis, pleads with Zeus and the fates for him to be spared the inevitable death that waits for him on the plain before Troy. She presents him with the choice that she has negotiated, a long life, security and obscurity in Thessaly, as he takes up the duties of his father and protects the Myrmidons, or a brief life of honour, glory and eternal renown. Achilles chooses the latter. And despite Thetis's attempt to protect him by dipping him in the waters of the Styx as an infant, dies at the hand of Paris, having destroyed Hector. Nicholson writes beautifully about the moment where Achilles achieves that honour and glory. Given that Achilles spends much of the Iliad famously sulking in his tent whilst Hector and other Trojans lay waste to the Greek armies and nearly defeat them altogether, he hardly seems covered in glory, still less when he murders Hector, then mutilates his body, apparently avenging the death of Patroclus, but more plausibly mitigating his own guilt for failing to protect his beloved Patroclus. But then... Priam, king of Troy, guided and protected by Hermes, goes with wagons of the best of Troy in terms of treasure and booty, directly to Achilles, and begs for the return of Hector's body, which, despite Achilles' best efforts, has been preserved whole by the gods. Priam kneels before Achilles then kisses the hands that destroyed his most precious and courageous son 
and Achilles, in a shock of recognition, sees not the enemy, but an image of his own ageing father, Imthea, and understands what he has chosen, what he has done, and what he had left undone that led to this extraordinary moment of grace. The two men weep together, mourning both Hector and Patroclus, mourning their own imminent deaths, mourning the destruction of the city that is to come. I started my journey with Homer, loving the Odyssey, but a few years ago, teaching A-level classical civilization, I chose to teach the Iliad. We spent six months exploring the poem, my students and I, and with every passing lesson, I loved it a little more. If I were marooned on a desert island, I would swap the Bible that one is offered with the Iliad in a heartbeat. That is, in part, thanks to Adam Nicholson making such a powerful case for why Homer matters. Join me next week for a little taste of James Baldwin. Thank <laughs> you.